G'day, and welcome to My Favourite Album. I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon, and each episode I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. There's no better way to introduce my guest today than three quotes from Raymond Chandler. The truth of art keeps science from becoming inhuman, and the truth of science keeps art from becoming ridiculous. The solution, once revealed, must seem to have been inevitable. And down these mean streets a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid, a complete man and a common man, and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honour. These are all quotes about writing mystery novels, but they could apply equally to Ben Montench's eternally tasteful and unwaveringly right keyboard playing. Before you know he's even there, he's played exactly what was needed to make a great song iconic and then slid away just as softly, hat slouched over his face and the smell of a perfectly percolated cup of coffee wafting out of your speakers. He's played with everyone from Dylan to Cash to Ryan Adams, Stevie Nicks to Fiona Apple to The Stones. He's a 40-year founding member of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and his solo album, You Should Be So Lucky, is the audio equivalent of the sun setting over the LA skyline. Benmont, welcome back to my favorite album. It's good to be back. Dang, man, that was beautiful. Thank you. As far as Chandler goes, well, I'm plenty tarnished and plenty afraid, but God, I love <laughs> Raymond Chandler. I, I love Raymond Chandler. So I'm more in the Boromir mold, except I'm waiting for the last reel so that I can see if just before dying I rescue my uh, my honor and my reputation. Anyway, I hope it takes a long time before I pass away. But I'd like to retrieve my honor. So maybe we can do that right now when we talk about No Reply and various other sundry Beatles incidents. Yeah, it is Beatles month on the podcast. And we last time I saw you, which was um, at Largo in L.A. last year, we were talking about one someday doing a podcast about the Beatles. And this seemed like the opportune time. And what you said to me on uh, Instagram was, aren't we going to do 90 minutes on No Reply? So I think that's a good place to start, as any. It's as good a place to start as any. You know, I read a post on Instagram that Roseanne Cash wrote, and I think she's done this. Maybe, um, I don't know who with, maybe on the Brain Pickings pod, um, podcast. She's apparently got her own take on No Reply. But after we communicated, I decided I would deliberately not check out what Roseanne had to say. <laughs> so, you know, I could check out what I have to say. Yeah. This happened once before. I came to your door. No reply. They said it wasn't you. But I saw you peek through your window. I saw the light. I saw the light. I know that you saw me as I looked up to see your face. No Reply. What a stunner of a song. I found No Reply when I think I was 11 years old on the album Beatles 65. Because being American, 
It was the way that you learned about the Beatles, was the Capitol Records releases, the re-releases, basically, where they, you know, they rearranged the order of the songs, they rearranged what was going to be on the records, they dropped a few things, they put on a few things from EPs. But Beatles 65 is pretty much put together from Beatles for sale. I think that was their fourth record, and a damn fine record it is. I found it on Beatles 65, and on Beatles for Sale, which I have in my pause as well, yeah, it's pretty much the same record, in, to a large extent, Beatles 65. So little me, 11 or 12 years old, new Beatles record, maybe bought at the record store, maybe bought at the drugstore, because you could buy records at the drugstore in those days. They were about three bucks. And I get home, and I put it on my parents' console stereo, and... um. To start a record, to you know, start a record album or a song with just the vocal, it happened once, be and then the band kicks in with that fantastic, whatever that Latin beat is that Ringo's playing. That kind of bossa nova thing. Yeah, that kind of bossa nova thing that didn't sound like a lot of bossa nova that made it to the U.S. could be kind of cuted up, but it wasn't cute on that song. And I'm like 11 or 12 years old. I have no romance in my life. I don't know anything about No Reply, and I don't know anything about the story in the song, which I think John said he was basically writing the song Silhouettes on the Shade, and he was taking that same story and rewriting it. I didn't have this experience, but boy, it just cut to my core, the lyric and everything. So I was really taken with it. I was taken with the beat. I was taken with the way the chords moved. I was taken with the melody and the directness of the singing. You know, the whole package. It was one of my favorite songs of theirs. Really, flat out, one of my favorite songs. When I think about it now, with the experience of hearing a few other things of theirs and reading a few things about it, the anthology record has a version of No Reply on it. One of my favorite things in No Reply is when the chorus comes around where he says No Reply, when he says, you know, I nearly died, or I saw the light, yeah. And at the end, he actually says no reply. There's this minor chord. There's two minor chords in a row, followed by two major chords. And the emotional impact of the lyric and the melody against the way those chords came out and the way that the band is playing, you know, hitting the cymbal and the kick drum and the low piano notes with it. It's got a lot of emotional impact. And it's just stellar songwriting, you know, wherever that stuff comes from. So in 92 or whenever they came out with, uh, or 95, whenever they came out with the Beatles anthology series, there's an early take of No Reply. No Reply, take one. One, two, three, four, one. This happened once before, but I can do your door. There's no samba beat. There's just kind of the Beatle beat. And those minor chords aren't in there. There's just a couple of regular chords. There isn't a snippet on that record, the conversation of who came up with the idea, George Martin, or was it Paul? Was it John? Somebody wandering in through the room saying, no, play this chord there instead, that changes the entire song and brings just the pain of it, you know, uh, the I nearly died, I saw the light, all of that. It just brings the pain in. It just lets you feel it, that it has that that chord against the melody. Also, the American records were 
not remixed, but remastered by a guy named, uh, I don't know who did the mastering, but a guy named Dave Dexter Jr. at Capitol in the U.S. He was in charge, I think, of putting the Beatles catalog out over here. And I got a book just recently. Chris Carter, uh, who has a great Beatles show over here, he sent me a book on the Beatles that talks about this Dave Dexter fella as if he's a villain that maybe he is the guy that chopped up the records and that he was no particular friend or fan of the Beatles. But one thing they did when they put the records out in the U.S. is it seems like they remastered them through the Capitol reverb chamber. And what that did is, bear with me if you want to, if you listen to the English stereo releases, the much maligned English stereo releases, you might hear just the voice on the right and just the band on the left, because they didn't apparently take much care with it. If you listen to the American releases, they're blended together much better, because I think they put it through this reverb that spread everything back and forth across both sides. It's a really sweet sound. So when I listen to No Reply in the American version, there's this really nice sweet spread of the stereo, at least as I recall. This happened once before, I came to your door. No reply They said it wasn't you But I saw you peep through Your window I got Beatles for sale when I was probably 18 or 20 in an import store and put it on and realized that when he sings that great, great melody with um, I Saw the Light and I Nearly Died and No Reply with the minor chord Ringo hits a kick drum and a cymbal and in the English stereo, it's all on one side by itself with the vocal. It just comes in out of nowhere. Just this whomp of percussion. And this is stomp punctuating the pain one more time. And, you know, that's just flat-out brilliant. I know Ringo a little bit. I've met Paul once or twice. I met George once or twice. I don't know either of those guys. And I've never, you know, tried to pick Ringo's brain, and I don't think I ever would. I want to leave him alone for once. Somebody's <laughs> got to leave the guy alone. You know, but I wonder about this band that would take this really beautiful song and while playing it, and messing with it, and coming up with a beat or whatever, somebody at some point has this idea to reharmonize what's going to happen on basically the punchline of the song. And how all of this evolved and how it came about, how much of what they did was intellectual and thought out, and how much of it was instinctive, and somebody maybe accidentally their hands went over to this chord or whether somebody went, oh, we could substitute that or the other, or whether Ringo just went, but what if I hit a symbol here? Just to know, just to know what their process was. You know, they have biographies and autobiographies, and there are all these books where people purport to write down exactly what happened and when it happened and what track was used for what. And it's probably pretty accurate. It's probably very accurate. But it doesn't really give you, you know, the, the thought process 
where, you know, maybe you can't because so much of this is mystery. You can't really write some things down, like why you'd choose this chord or that chord. But I've always wondered, you know, how much of this was instinctive? How much of this was like, I don't know, some Northwestern punk band in 1965 like the Sonics, who I don't know how much intellectual work went into them, but they were brilliant. And how much of it was more on the like modern art rock bands like, you know, Radiohead, for instance, who seem like they seem like they think things through a lot. You know, I'm just, I'm just, it'd be lovely to know. So Paul, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, if you're listening, come on the show and well, then we'll also address this problem. Well, come on the show with me and we'll have a talk about it, you know. Y- yeah. Well, or I could just ask Ringo, but honest to God, I, I really, somebody has to not ask him. <laughs> and, you know. It's funny because I was reading an interview the other, um, the other week with your mate, with Tom Petty, about his relationship with George Harrison when they were in the Wilburys together. And he said, I asked him all the Beatles questions constantly, all the time. I'm a lot more shy than Tom. <laughs> and also, you know, like, he was in a band with him hanging out all the time. You know, I see Ringo now and then. But, you know, like, he was in a band with him hanging out all the time. And he's told me some of those things that he asked him and some of the answers. And they're pretty bloody funny. But, <laughs> you know, I also yeah. suspect some Rashomon from those guys. And I think even Harrison said that, that, you know, like, well, you think this happened and I think that happened. Yeah, I guess it is now we're five decades on, five decades plus with some of this stuff from when it was actually recorded and you're trying to remember on a day when you did, you know, seven takes of a song and you also recorded three other songs, who came up with the idea to put this guitar fill in the second verse. And I also wonder at a certain point whether, it'd be interesting to know if this has ever happened for you, at a certain point you you tell a story about how you remember a song coming together and then at a certain point you're not remembering the session anymore you're remembering the story because the session only happened once but you've told the story for you know 20 30 40 years yeah you mean like it becomes set in stone and then there's the possibility that you see a photograph from that session it's like oh it isn't how i remembered it at all because that happens a lot it's like your memory is completely wrong it's been proven time and time again at least for me i'm always wrong <laughs> but no you can like We'll walk into a gig, and I'll say, oh, yeah, I remember when we – they're like, no, that was nothing like that. And the rest of the band will have the entirely different memory. They probably weren't as drunk. But, you know, so who played which lick? You know, if it's a good lick, I remember that I played it. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not going to take that away from me. Yeah. So, you know. There's a few things you, you were just talking about then that I want to dig into a bit. And the first of – is, you know, those little things in the song that have a big impact, like those minor chords, the hits on the kick and the cymbal at the same time, the things, even though largely, if you listen to that early recording and the final version on Beatles for Sale or Beatles 65, it's the same melody, it's the same lyric, but it's those little things that can take a song from being, that's a good song, to being, that's... A, a classic song, or that's an incredibly effective and emotional piece of music, and it's just the little things that can make all that difference. Well, check this out. Uh, um, 
I have a thought that one of the things that a really good record does is it keeps you paying close attention. And so many records, you know, there's the intro, there's the verse, it's a little quieter. Oh, it's going to get big in the second out of the verse. Chorus is really big. Now we drop down for the next verse, but we bring in the organ or the strings, the background vocals. It's just got a pattern. And it's easy to tune out unless it's a stellar, stellar song with a great groove and a great vocal. But if you've got a great song with a great groove and a great vocal, well, if you deepen the groove like they did with no replies, that is unusual and it has a certain intimacy in it that the Mersey Beat version that they had cut that's on Anthology didn't have. It's like you'd heard that before from the Beatles. You'd heard a song that started with this beat and it was cool and like, that's great, it's the Beatles. But you hadn't really heard a samba or a bossa nova or anything since, you know, I don't know, P.S. I Love You or Ask Me Why or something. And this is a much, much better song than either one's, one of those. So you've changed the groove around. Okay, so you're in. You started with that, this happened once before. So you started with just John's double track vocal and bang, you're in. And you've got this beat that keeps your attention and it lets you hear the vocal. It lets you hear the story. And he told a story really, really well, John Lennon. He made you want to listen anyway. But when you've got this melody and these chords underneath it and you get up to the payoff and you go to that minor chord, that really dramatic minor chord that gets loud for just those, I saw the light, I nearly died lines, and then drops right back down for the, because I looked up to see your face, you know. I know that you saw me because I looked up to see your face. It drops right back down for that. And it keeps you involved in the story. You don't tune out in no reply. You never tune out. When it gets to the you know, it has very little piano, but the piano is very effective. And so it gets to the bridge, and they bring in the eighth notes on the piano. You know, if I were you, I'd realize. Just that, it's flawless. It is flawless. And it's very brief, you know. It only goes, how long is that song? Uh, it's two, two minutes, minutes 16, I think. Yeah, Something two like minutes that. 16. And that's if you let the last uh, piano chord ring out. Even that, the last piano chord, that's just brilliant. I mean... I don't know what it's called. It says in the book that I have, it says it's a C major ninth. But, you know, I never play them in the right key anyway, so I thought it was some <laughs> kind of an E sixth, which might be a C major ninth, I don't know, or C minor ninth, C major. But everything propels, everything moves forward, everything keeps your attention, but not in some corny, look how smart we are way. The other thing about this band, well, hell, the other thing, the thousand other things include, <laughs> they're really, really smart, obviously, like so many other bands, modern bands, bands all throughout whatever, but they're really, really smart. In a way, they're an art band, but they're also really warm, and they have a sense of humor, which you don't find in most of the other bands that put any intellect things. And the secret weapon in this whole thing is Ringo Starr in the Beatles. The secret weapon, because everybody talks about John and Paul, and they finally started talking about George. But Ringo Starr, because rock and roll, early rock and roll, is black music. But really quickly, Elvis Presley showed up, Buddy Holly showed up, and the Everly Brothers showed up, and it became like a blend of the white music with the black music, of the Hank Williams influence, with, you know, the... Uh, Cosimo Matassa recorded Little Richard, Earl Palmer, all of this deep, deep stuff with great, great drummers and, and all of that. Sleeping in a slide, keeping in a hide, been told a long time 
the Beatles are a rhythm and blues band. The people that try to have their beatle sounding records, they don't have a soul band rhythm section. They don't have Earl Palmer on the drums. The Beatles have Earl Palmer, they have Ringo Starr on the drums. And so they've got that. And that's a big, big, big deal. Rock and roll, it's rhythm music. It's rhythm music. And there's nothing stiff about this stuff. And together with McCartney, who's, you know, probably the most influential bass player that I can think of, him and James Jamerson. And there's a lot of great influential bass players, but those two, Jamerson up at Motown and McCartney, who I guarantee was listening to Jamerson and Carol Kay and her stuff with Spectre and the Beach Boys. But McCartney, I mean, wow, listen to anything like, even to this day, you hear somebody ripping off the lick to tax man. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. Because I'm the tax man. When you hear super melodic bass that still has this certain swing that is very, very influenced by rhythm and blues and black music, you're hearing McCartney. Because as melodic as the Beach Boys records are on the bass, as brilliant as all of that is, and as much as Brian Wilson apparently loves rhythm and blues, those records don't sound like rhythm and blues to me. They're great records, but the Beatles, the, the basis of the Beatles records is a band that did girl group copies, you know, black girl group copies, the Marvelettes, all of this stuff, band that did Isley Brothers covers, you know? They did Arthur Alexander songs. They did Chuck Berry songs. And that's the deal. So when you get, if you're going to play a bossa nova, but you have cats like McCartney and Ringo who are going to play that bossa nova as if they were playing behind, I don't know, not Little Richard, but behind one of those great, great soul singers from back then, rhythm and blues rock and roll singers from, from New Orleans especially. Dude, you then you've got some. Then you've really got some. And then you've got the Beatles. I think we should probably take it back to the beginning now for you with the Beatles and talk about the moment, if you remember the moment, the first time you consciously heard the Beatles and how that felt. My father, who was a lawyer and then later was a judge, worked for the State Department for a few years. And he moved us down to the Republic of Panama. And at one point, while we were waiting for our, uh, our quarters to show up, you know, for the house we were going to move into, you know, be ready or if the furniture we moved in, we lived in a hotel. And I remember I was in my room in the hotel or, you know, my portion of this room. I was probably in my corner that had the rollaway set up. And my older sister came up to me and said, come here, you got to hear this. And she had the armed forces station and it was on and it was playing. I want to hold your hand. Oh, yeah. Tell you something. 
And she said, isn't this just fantastic? It scared me. I thought, I don't know if I like this. This is weird. I never heard anything like this in my life. This is scary because it was so, so weird. And she was so excited. And then the radio station played it again. Like they played it two or three times in a row. They played it at least twice in a row because everybody was really excited. And I started to go, hey, wait a minute. I like this. This is really something. It's, it's just, I just haven't heard anything like it before. And I was hooked. And by the time She Loves You came out, which I think I had gotten back to the U.S. by the time Capital put out She Loves You because it had been released by another label, Swan, in the U.S. before I Want to Hold Your Hand. But for most of the country, I think we heard I Want to Hold Your Hand and then She Loves You. She Loves You came out and I was just, it was all over for me. She loves you just, it does what no reply does. I Want to Hold Your Hand has some really, like, thrilling, strange choices of where to put that chord against that melody. And it's just so such a great melody and such a great track with so much power and energy in it. But when you hit She Loves You, you get those chords like no reply that just tear at your heart. Man, I'm telling you. So I didn't see them like most of America, on the first night that they were on the Ed Sullivan Show. I don't remember seeing that performance until later. The performance that I remember is two weeks later, they did the Ed Sullivan Show, from, and it was broadcast from Miami, Florida. And I saw that in Panama, for sure. And, man, I don't know what it was like in the rest of the world, but in the United States, and since I was in Panama, I have a little bit of a different opinion. And we were not living in the... American zone in Panama, in the Canal Zone. We were living in Panama. So I had a different take, probably a different experience than most Americans did, but I remember it crystal clear. I mean, I could almost remember what I was wearing when my sister said, come listen to this, and I heard, I want to hold your hand. Then I went to the record store and I looked for the Beatles, and they, what they had was, you know, it was probably Please Please Me, which I would have loved, but I think what he played me was P.S. I Love You, and it totally... I was like, no, that's not that's not what I heard. P.S. I Love You is not, that's not, you know, this insane Martian rock and roll that I want to hold your hand is. So I, I didn't get the 45. But they, they, they changed the world. They changed the world in an economic sense simply for so many of us who are now musicians. Because, yeah, Buddy Holly had his own band. There were people with bands. But the Beatles exploded and everybody got a band. Like immediately, within a month, everybody had a band. And the ones that were any good were like, oh, I can do this. I can get together with my friends. We can play songs. And hey, maybe I can write songs. Oh, this is how you do it. They didn't invent it. But they sure as hell said, hey, it's here. Look at this. Yeah, they, they really blazed the trail. They really blazed the trail. So I don't know if you were playing it at the time when you first heard the Beatles, but as you 
started playing and were learning piano and then later when you were playing with people for the first time were you playing Beatles songs were you trying to work all these songs out oh hell yes um I've been playing piano since I was seven six or seven and the Beatles I was 10 when I first heard them so yeah I was playing piano and I was supposed to practice for 45 minutes a day and my idea of practicing was trying to figure out the latest Beatles songs on the piano and I couldn't always figure them out because there's just some little subtle details in the chords. Not that they're that tricky, but they're unexpected. And they have some little little subtle details in the way that you play the chord that make all the difference. But yeah, that's what I'd do. I'd try to figure out the latest Beatles song or an animal song or a zombie song or something like that. And then I would have, you know, somebody would say, <clears throat> excuse me, and I would go back to practicing my scales or whatever it was. <laughs> So what's it like for you when you play Beatles songs with people in more recent years? Because I imagine, I mean, I know for a fact that you you, you still play Beatles songs occasionally with people because I saw you play um, Strawberry Fields with Robin Hitchcock at Largo last year. But I don't know how frequently it happens. But when you play a, a Beatles song with someone these days, tell me how that feels. Well, I stay away from playing Beatles songs usually, unless it's a situation at Largo where it's really casual. Like with Robin, we you know we were going to do that because I think we were playing on John Lennon's birthday. Maybe I'm not were, certain, yeah. but I think it was Lennon's birthday. Um, and playing with Robin, well, you know how can you not? But the Heartbreakers always shied away from playing the Beatles, partly because it's like why bother. <laughs> You know, it's not going to come anywhere near. Now, there's a thing you can do to find the joy in a familiar song. And I'm all for that. The Heartbreakers, we played, we did a tour with uh, with Dylan when we were backing up Dylan. We went to the Middle East and Europe in 1987. And McGuinn, Roger McGuinn was, was opening. So McGuinn would come on solo. Then we'd join him for a couple of songs. And then he'd go off, we'd play some. And then Bob would come on, we'd back Bob up and so on like that. And we played I Want to Hold Your Hand with McGuinn. At least that's the way that I remember it. And then for the concert for George, we learned a couple of George's songs. But we've always shied away from them. And the ones that people tend to play when they play a club like Largo are kind of the middle period ones, like Strawberry Fields. Or sometimes somebody will get really ambitious and play I Am the Walrus. <laughs> And, you know, or maybe in my life, I think I've played in my life with John Bryan. But the stuff that really thrills me the most in the Beatles catalog is those first five albums or so. First five or six, the, the ones before Sgt. Pepper, although I'm a big White Album fan. But that stuff, the early stuff, when they're just the rock and roll rhythm and blues band with like some really alien life form Info, DNA got in there somewhere. But that rock and roll band that made those first records, holy cow, you know, holy cow. That band that could write No Reply and play that, but also play that crazy version of rock and roll music. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. Any old way you choose it. It's got a backbeat, you can't lose it. If you wanna dance with me, if you wanna dance with me. 
you know, to go through that and, and be nuts enough to do Mr. Moonlight, do the total Ray Charles on the vo- vocally, do the total Ray Charles on She's a Woman, and be nuts enough to open with feedback on I Feel Fine. You know, that period of that band, not to mention the band that, you know, made the first couple of records, the band that covered the rhythm and blues songs, the band that you can hear the excitement of them knowing, oh, wait, this is what we sound like. They knew they were good. You know, those guys knew they were good. To hear that band just bust out and play, you know, Little Child on, I think it's on With the Beatles, it's on Meet the Beatles in the U.S. Little Child, I mean, there's a rock and roll song and a half. And it's, it can't be more than two minutes long. That stuff. And then, you know, No Reply in that record, the Beatles for Sale record is kind of, to me, I guess, where they're starting to stretch it and realize, okay, we need to take this somewhere else. We can take this somewhere else. And then, so it's kind of transitional towards um, Help and then Rubber Soul. Rubber Soul, which is a flat-out masterpiece in both the American versions and the uh, British versions. And they're different. But the American version is a case of Dave Dexter, if he was a bad guy, he did a good thing. Because it's a really nice job of sequencing what he put on that wasn't on Rubber Soul and what he took off made for an interesting alternate version of Rubber Soul. There are places I remember ever think about this is something i've been thinking about recently even though i discovered them later in terms of general time chronology than you did we both fell in love with the beatles at pretty much exactly the same age i was 11 when i discovered them as well and do you ever think about what it would be like to come to these records new later in life well for sure because ryan adams just posted you saw those right oh yeah right i just looked on instagram there's ryan adams the first one that i saw was that he was sitting there listening to the hard day's night album all the way through for the first time in his life i don't know you should speak to ryan about that experience but the to be a songwriter of ryan's quality and to be a rock and roller of ryan's quality and to have his brain the way that that's wired and have this stuff all laid on you at once later in life that's got to be a really great experience way different than being a kid and way different than knowing oh there's gonna there's a new beatles album out i gotta run down to the record store or the drugstore or whatever wherever you go for your records that's a different thing when they're being doled out and you know that they're still around and they're creating it but when you're completed with complete works of somebody it's like you've been handed the late edition of Whitman's Leaves of Grass and told, you know, hey, read this or, you know, or, a, you know, a complete collection of Raymond Chandler, you know. And I, I guess at this stage as well, it must be listening to Beatles albums after having had decades of loving music that came out subsequently must be a bit like uh, there's a whole generation of people who grew up on The Simpsons and then go and watch 
Casablanca or Citizen Kane, or there's like, yeah. oh, this is where all these lines came from. This is where all those references are. So, and everything, so much of music goes back to those Beatles records that it must be like, oh, that's where that came from. Well, it's the shock of the new. It's like the rest of us will never know why the Rites of Spring was so scandalous and caused such fierce reaction, you know, when it came out. The rest of us will never really know, except that they were rather rude lads, why the Sex Pistols caused such an uproar when they happened, because we weren't there, or what was revolutionary about jazz. But, you know, I was fortunate enough to be just old enough to remember before the Beatles. Now, Elvis made his first record when I was, you know, like two or three. So rock and roll was pretty much on the radio, though there was plenty of the other stuff. There always was. Even when the Beatles were on the charts, there was plenty of the, you know, the sweeter, smoother, excuse me, pop stuff on the radio. But I'm here to tell you, (laughs) when you turned on the radio, like I remember where I was. I was in a car with my parents coming back from a trip to Alabama, I think, and we had the radio on. And some distant station that we had just lost the ability to pick it up. It was fading in and out and staticky. And they said, this is brand new from the Beatles. And they played. Hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let her into your heart. Then you can start. And we when we pulled into the driveway at my parents' house, and I was like, I'm going to sit and listen to the rest of this, if it's okay. And uh, they're like, yeah, sure. And I think a couple of my sisters wanted to hear the rest of it, too. But then the rest of it was longer than the song itself, because that <laughs> fade is, I think the fade is longer than the song. I mean, they were, they were messing with everybody all the time. Yeah, to know that there was going to be a new Beatles record. And that they wouldn't let you down, which is why Let It Be was such a tragedy, musically. You know, nobody died. But Let It Be, it's a pity, because those are really good songs. And under other circumstances, they might have made a really good record. And they made really good record of some of the songs, like Don't Let Me Down. That's a brilliant, bloody recording. Yeah. You know, but they didn't. You know, even the records that I don't put on very often, like Sgt. Pepper and like Abbey Road, Damn, they're good records. <laughs> and and once again, they did things on those records that people hadn't done. Abbey Road has a beautiful use of synthesizers. People had been using synthesizers. There was a musician named Dick Hyman who had uh, an instrumental that was hit, at least in Gainesville, called The Minotaur, before Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and all those prog rock bands. But the way the Beatles used the synthesizers to evoke horns and things like that on Abbey Road... It's really unique to that record. And again, if you listen to I Want You, She's So Heavy, or She Came In Through the Bathroom Window, there's that rhythm and blues rhythm section. That just knockout of a backbeat that swings like crazy and kind of leans forward and is crisp and tight, but also sloppy at the same time. How do you do that? Because he's not a sloppy drummer. He knows what he's doing. If he doesn't know what he's doing, then he he does it really, really right. You know, like Levon. Levon swings like crazy and is so sweet and flowing, but he's a crisp drummer. And Ringo, listen, no reply. That guy knows what he's doing, you know. 
but listen to she came in through the bathroom window and that's a that's just a knockout knockout track Just before we started taping this, I was at the gym and I was listening to Back in the USSR, which yeah. Paul plays drums on. Yeah. And yeah. as I was just thinking, I was thinking about that as I was listening to it and thinking about how straight a part it is. Like it's completely 100% totally dead on the beat straight and the feels are totally straight. And I, that to me is how you know it's not a Ringo track because Ringo never played anything totally straight. He always play with the beat a little bit yeah he he can't help but swing but the thing is i think paul's a great drummer like paul is a really really cool drummer and he swings too but in his way and there's something extra with there's a whole lot extra with ringo there's the apocryphal story that everybody thinks is true that apparently isn't that Somebody said, is, is Ringo the best drummer in the world? And that Lennon supposedly said, he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. But apparently, that's been debunked. And if yeah. Lennon said that, I can't imagine that he was doing anything but joking. Apparently, it was some comedian said it yeah, in long the after they broke up. Yeah, um, And it, it got tacked on to Lennon. But hey, that guy can play the damned drums. I got to work with him just about two months ago. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, that guy can play the drums. Man, I wish that uh, they record together just as a rhythm section, Paul and uh, Paul and Ringo, because there's nothing like it. But what makes up that band is that it's the four of them. You know, you got to put the other two guys with them to get that sound, and we can't get those other two guys on the phone. I don't know why they aren't answering, but they haven't been answering for a few years. You know? Yeah, I've been trying to get on the podcast with not much luck either. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about you and Ringo, because you guys, you played together, he played on your record, you just played with him on Jenny Lewis's new record with, with Ryan. So tell me about how you guys met originally and what it's like playing with him through the years. I just know him casually, and I haven't gotten to play with him nearly enough. I think I met him through Don Was, because Don was producing an album for him, the one with The Weight of the World on it. And I think I came down and just overdubbed, and I didn't get to play live with him. And we did a video, and I went down to be in the video, and he had the kit set up. We were doing a lip sync, but between takes, he starts playing, and I'm like, holy moly. But the thing I remember from the video that was iconic for me as a kid of a Beatle fan is, this was in the early 90s, but they had the, you know, the spotlights, the movie lights on him. And 
they cast a shadow against the back of this theater that was that silhouette of that guy who sits high behind those drums with his head leaning a certain way and his hand swinging a certain way against the hi-hat. And that was, you know, I remember that image. But, you know, we know each other. We know each other pretty decently, pretty well. But still, I usually overdub, which is a thrill. But it's always a thrill. But on the record for Jenny that Ryan was producing, yeah, we did some live track. And he also came down on the Wildflowers album for us. And we cut a couple of tracks with him then. And that was a special experience. Because, again, Tom's a wonderful songwriter. And we had a couple of really good songs. And we had our band, which I think is a really good band. Nobody's them, but we're a good band. And we had, you know, we had Rick and really good recording engineers. And we got a couple of tracks with Ringo. And that was beauty. That was a beauty of the day. And the days went by like paper in the wind. Everything changed, then changed again. It's hard to find a friend. Hard to find a friend. Was that before um, Steve had joined? No, that was on the Wildflowers record, which was it's, it's nominally called a a solo record. But if you look at the credits, I mean, it looks like the Heartbreakers to me. But Stan, I think, had Stan was still technically in the band, so who knows? And I think they hadn't. Decide, they, they hadn't decided, I don't think. I don't think Tom had decided. Stands out, I'm getting this guy. He was just making a record. So it's like, well, we don't have a fixed drummer, and Ringo would be great on this song. So let's call him up and see if he'll come down. And he did. That's not a bad rule of thumb. We don't have a drummer. Why not get Ringo? Well, you know, it's worked out for us before because um, Ferroni couldn't do, because of an obligation, he couldn't do an episode of Saturday Night Live with us. And Tom thought... Well, let's call Dave Grohl. I mean, all he can do is say no, and he didn't say no. <laughs> so, you know, if you can't, if, if the drummer, if the fabulous drummer you have isn't available, you know, why not get, why not, you know, shoot for the stars? So I read somewhere that Jimmy Page played on somebody's record, and an interviewer said, well, you don't do many sessions anymore. And Page said, well, nobody ever asks. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean I think that Page is dying to be doing a bunch of sessions, but, you know, why not? Why not ask? Tell me the story, which I, I know and I know you, you've told before, but I think it, it speaks to something special about Ringo of um, him playing on your record. Well, I had this song, Blonde Girl in a Blue Dress, and I just thought that the feel would be, you know, I thought he'd be just the cat for it. So I asked him if he'd play on it, and I was thinking, I'll get Ringo, and I love the way Tom plays bass, and they're friends, they know each other, so, you know, why not? do that. I didn't have any other heartbreakers on the record, but I thought, well, it might be fun because I really like the way that Tom plays bass. So Glenn Johns and I got a hold of Ringo and Ringo said, absolutely. When is it? And we cut the record with Jeremy Stacy, who's just, a, uh, he's a great drummer. Jeremy Stacy, ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Stacy, a great <laughs> drummer. So we used Jeremy Stacy for the record and then we were going to have uh, Ringo come down and cut the track. And we called up Ringo, and he had the dates wrong by a week, and I think he was out of town. Or maybe by only two or three days, and he was out of town. So we cut the track with Jeremy, with Tom on the bass, and cut a few other tracks that day. 
And then uh, the day that Ringo got back, he called up and said, I'm sorry I missed it. And I said, well, you want to play some tambourine? And he was there in like 20 minutes with this, this little gym bag full of little percussion things. And he threw a tambourine on the thing. And it already swung just Jeremy, but he really like, he really swung it. Away. Have you ever come so close? Have you ever just touched down? Ethan Johns, like Glenn Johns produced the record that I made, and his son Ethan, who's a great like singer, songwriter, and a great producer, he cut that song himself. You know? So I'm glad the song had a life beyond just my record, that blonde girl in a blue dress song. Ethan did it really well. Cool. Probably did it better than me. But yeah, Ringo, he just said, I'll be right there. And he grabbed a bunch of tambourines and came down and threw them on. It was like, yeah, that guy's got the feel that speaks to my heart. Even more than, say, Earl Palmer, who I really love, who played on the stuff from New Orleans, which is, you know, I don't know if he played on the Fat Stomino stuff. He definitely played on the Little Richard stuff. There was a great bunch of musicians for the early rock and rollers to work with when they worked in New Orleans. And Earl Palmer played on tons of that stuff. And I think he moved out here. May have been the most recorded drummer there was. But if you listen to, you know, The Girl Can't Help Him, Lucille and all that stuff, you listen to Little Richard with Earl Palmer, that's that's the pinnacle. But for me, the extra thing that Ringo does that's a little bit of choice of what to play and a little bit of um, just that, that unique lope that he has to his playing, that's the cat that... That's the cat that thrills me. Just flat out thrills me, you know? Because we yeah. talked about Charlie Watts when we talked about, you know, the... Uh, Beggar's Banquet. When we talked about Beggar's Banquet. And uh, if you've got Charlie... Like, what happened in England? Like, what was that? I was thinking earlier today. Rhythm sections. Like, riddle me this, like they used to say on the late Adam West's TV show. Um, riddle me this, you know? Like, how come... When you think of an American rock and roll band, do you think of a great rhythm section? I mean, I like our rhythm section. I loved it with Stanley, and I love it with uh, with Ferroni. I loved it with Howie. I love it with Ron. But when I think of an American rhythm section, I think of the session players. I think of the players in Motown. I think of the players in Memphis. I think of the players in Muscle Shoals and in Nashville and the Wrecking Crew out here. But as far as rock and roll bands, it doesn't just leap to my mind. And maybe I'm just not remembering somebody. As far as just a stellar rhythm section, I mean, the Allman Brothers obviously did. The Grateful did have their unique one and so on. But when you go to the rock bands out of England, you've got Mick Fleetwood and John McVie. You've got Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman. You've got Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. You've got Pete Thomas and Bruce Thomas and later Davy Farragher and The Attractions. I mean, holy moly. Paul Simonon and uh, Topper Hedden and The Clash. Bonham and John Paul Jones. It goes on and on and on. I don't know what happened in England. They got it in a big way. They understood the rhythm. They really understood the rhythm. I don't think that people understand the rhythm in that fashion. And like I said, the people that do their Beatles trip... They don't have the rhythm and blues background. They don't do it. There's a story that I heard Ringo tell in an interview a few years back 
where I can't remember what provoked it, him telling the story, but he said that, you know, one day, I think it was in like the, in the seventies, he's reading this drum magazine and it's an interview with Jim Keltner. The guy asks Jim Keltner, so who do you reckon is the greatest rock drummer of all time? And Jim Keltner goes, oh, that's easy. That's Charlie Watts. So Ringo calls him up and says, Jim, I just read, I just read this article. What the, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Charlie Watts is the, the best rock drummer of all time. And he said, ring, you swing. Exactly. Now, Charlie swings like a motherfucker. But, pardon my French, Charlie swings. He just flat out swings. There is no question that Charlie Watts swings super hard. But Charlie's a rock and roll drummer who grew up on jazz. And Ringo is a rock and roll drummer who grew up on rhythm and blues. At least that's what it sounds like to me. So you've got um, so the different sensibilities. Ringo's a rhythm and blues drummer. And Charlie Watts, you know, like, he's unique. Lord have mercy. Ringo's, Ringo seems to me, and I think it was Keltner that pointed it out to me, it was Keltner that pointed it out to me, that Ringo is a rhythm and blues drummer. The Beatles were a little rhythm and blues combo. They were a little R&B combo. And it's easy to forget that, especially now that we're celebrating Sgt. Pepper this year with all the, you know, for the benefit of Mr. Kite and she's leaving home and all of that, you know, really innovative stuff that they did. But my favorite stuff on that record is the reprise of Sgt. Pepper into Day in, the, Day in the Life, because that reprise on Sgt. Pepper, that's a tough little rock and roll band playing that. Oh, yeah. And, and Day in the Life, <laughs> how do you even, like, what on earth is that? Wow. Wow. You know? That's a bunch of aliens. That's what that is. What the Beatles did for me was go, oh, this is over here. And I always figured that's too deep and too brilliant for me to figure out exactly what they're doing. So I might as well try to do something of mine. And I think that's a pretty good lesson to learn from those guys. But I've got in front of me the book that came out years and years ago called The Complete Beatles, C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T. And it's the sheet music to all of their stuff. It's not the one that came out later that has all the instrumentation where somebody listened closely and did their best to figure out exactly what instrument played what. You know, what did the harmonium play on Tomorrow Never Knows and all that kind of thing. Or the horns or whatever it is on Tomorrow Never Knows. But my father, I just opened it and realized my father gave me this in, um, in 1981. And, uh, that's so sweet that he did that. And I'm just looking at these these two volumes of, um, of the Complete Beatles. And it's got, you know, all the chords and all of that stuff. But, you know, that's some serious school to go to. Degas said, I think, you start, you know, to go and copy, you know, copy the masters. I think it was Degas. And Degas was a brilliant draftsman and a brilliant artist. But to study by taking apart those who came before you and learning exactly how they did it, it's a really good thing. You know, you don't stop learning. 
If you stop learning, you're, you're dead. Let me take you down. Ben Mott, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Great to have another long chat with you. It's great. And, and uh, when you get up here, let me know when you're here because um, let's hang, okay? That'd be beautiful. Uh, it's great to talk to you, Jerry. That's it for another episode of My Favourite Album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myfavouritealbum. Subscribe on iTunes. And if you dig the show, please leave a review. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. That is, I think it's not too bad. Let me take.